right. How are y'all doing tonight? Better than we deserve. I'm better than I deserve. Hmm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this evening. Thank you for our time together tonight to uh, look into history, your story, that you are still writing and we are a part of, and we thank you for that. Father, help us to learn the lessons of the past so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past as we give witness to you and to your gospel as your church in the earth. Father, be glorified through your church, through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we um, talked about the fall of the Western Roman Empire last week, which uh, was a really an important event in history. It occurred for a hard date, 476. Remember, that was the date... Um, the year that the Germanic war chief, Odoacer, who was also a Roman commander in the Roman army, as were a lot of these guys. So Odoacer was a Germanic war chief. And so if you think about Europe, much of what we, what we call, what we know as Europe today, especially northern Europe, the 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 area around Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, all, all of that um, at one time was, was known as Germany uh, before our designations as of nations and countries today um, have come to be. Um, and so these Germanic tribes were, were not all... It's not that they were all hostile to the Romans. They were part of the Roman Empire. And Rome used, used them uh, because they needed their military um, power. So many of these Germanic chiefs and, and tribes had, had pretty substantial military power. And this was the case with Odoacer. And um, when he took over, or when he took the throne from uh, the last Roman Empire, remember, emperor, remember he was just a teenage boy. And we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. I don't want you to think that everything about Rome and about the Roman Empire just crumbled because that's, not really what happened. So, what we call the Dark Ages, which that term has kind of fallen out of, um, it, it, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the term most historians use today. So what we call the Dark Ages, or what has historically been called the Dark Ages, is, is the early Middle Ages, um, 
in that time period that we would call the early Middle Ages or the Dark Ages spans about 500 to 1,000. It's about 500 years. In Europe, um, the Dark Ages began in Europe around that time as a result of the fall of the Roman Empire. So it's worth us talking a little bit about this because it, it impacts us today. But also we see through this how God in his divine providence prepared the world, if you will, for all of this to take place. So in one sense, we have this phrase, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, because remember, at this time, um, the empire has been divided into two parts. Uh, it was divided into two by Domitian, and then it was brought back together by Constantine. Um, and, and it's really divided again. So you have Rome, and you have Constantinople, and Rome is kind of the seat of power for the Western Roman Empire. And Constantinople was the seat of power for the Eastern Roman Empire or what, what was called the Byzantine Empire. It was called the Byzantine Empire because the city Constantinople wasn't always called that. Remember, Constantine changed the name of it to Constantinople or New Rome. He really called it New Rome, but New Rome didn't stick. Constantinople or the city of Constantine is the name that stuck. But before that, before it was New Rome, before it was Constantinople, it was uh, Byzantium. That was the name of the city. And so Byzantium was the capital of the Byzantine Empire. And Byzantium came, became known as Constantinople. Today it's called Istanbul because of the uh, Ottoman Turks who conquered it um, later on in history. But when the Western Empire fell, uh, it didn't, it's not like everything crumbled. But some things did. So um, remember Rome and the Romans were great builders. So think about the Colosseum. Think about the aqueducts that still run across Europe that the Romans built that still carry water. Um, and, and so that infrastructure was established by Rome, built by Rome, um, but a lot of that infrastructure was not maintained after the fall of the Western Roman Empire the way it was under the Romans. Uh, but not everything dis deteriorated. So the Roman Senate still functioned. So Oda Acer didn't just come in and kill everybody. The Roman Senate was still in place. The administrative parts of the Roman Empire was, were still there. The church, um, the church that had become uh, centered there in Rome, the, the Western church, what later would become what we call the Roman Catholic Church, was the Roman Church. Um, and at this time in history, that's the only church there was. Now, there were different beliefs within the church. Um, and, and this is why in, the, in these early centuries of the church, 
you have these ecumenical councils that are called, remember Constantine called the Council of Nicaea to formalize um, Christian belief and to, if you will, standardize it so the gospel could be exported and everybody would be learning the same thing. And so the councils came together and they worked out these doctrinal issues. But there were, there were different um, there were different groups of people that believed different things. Now, what's interesting is these Germanic war tribes who basically, for instance, um, uh, the Goths who came in, the Vandals, uh, the Franks, all of these different tribes, they adopted Christianity. They, they, weren't, they didn't start out that way, but the gospel worked. The kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom was spread so that when, um, when these guys are ruling, they, they're Christian in their belief. So Oda Acer took rule in 476, but he was overthrown by a king called um, um, let me get his name right. He was uh, Theodoric. My dad's name was Theodore. Uh, this was King um, King Theodoric. Theodoric came in and he overthrew Oda Acer. And Theodoric was a Christian. Now, you know, um, Theodoric and Oda Acer made a truce and to show that 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 he was sincere Theodoric invited Odoacer to a banquet it's Theodoric and his people and Odoacer and his people came together for a banquet um, but Theodoric really didn't he didn't really just want to break bread with Odoacer he literally killed Odoacer with his bare hands at this banquet and then disposed of him and took the position as ruler of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire had fallen, but, but things were still in place. And so Theodoric, for instance, ruled really as a regent of the Eastern Emperor. And so I don't want you to think that everything just fell apart because that's not really what happened. But what did happen was, uh, for instance, you know, Rome was a city of, of over a million people. But when the Ostrogoths, the, the Ostrogoths, remember the Goths were this Germanic tribe and you had, you had Eastern Goths and Western Goths and the, the Western uh, Goths were the Visigoths, and the Eastern Goths were the Ostrogoths, and Theodoric was, a, was an Eastern Goth. He was aligned with the Eastern Empire. Later on, they all came together in this great Gothic empire that stretched from the Atlantic Ocean over to, um, to the east. But the point is that these kings adopted they embraced the Christian faith. So they weren't pagan 
any longer. I'm not saying they were good guys. It's like anyone today. You can call yourself a Christian. Was killing, you know, Oda Acer with his bare hands the Christian thing to do? Probably not. Um, but God takes crooked sticks and he draws straight lines with them. And so the rule of these kings is not insignificant because somehow from the inception of the Roman Empire, if we go back to Augustus, Octavian, who history says was the first proper emperor of the Roman Empire, um, and you fast forward to the fall of the empire, and you think for 500 years, Rome built this great world-dominating empire. And in the process, they built roads, and they established law, and they had government, and they had peace, and they had law and order, which allowed the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Now that this empire has fallen... But everything that was established by this empire didn't just go away overnight. And, and so these Germanic tribal chiefs who are now ruling the empire are, are ruling in the context of all that Rome built. And they're not called, they didn't call themselves Roman emperors and, and, and we don't count them in history as Roman emperors, but... Oda Acer and Theodoric ruled as emperors of Rome, if you will. But the interesting thing is, so they were, they were Christian. They had adopted Christianity and forsaken their paganism. Um, but these Germanic kings, so for instance, Oda Acer and Theodoric didn't rule in Rome. They... They had a city on the, on the western coast uh, of Italy where they, they ruled. It was called, I think it's called Rihanna. Uh, it's near Bologna in Italy up there. And, and that's where, um, that's actually where uh, the battle was fought when Oda Acer overthrew the, when he, took the Roman Empire, that's where the, the final battle was fought, and, and he took the throne at that city. Um, <clears throat> and so these guys, these German chiefs were Christian, but they didn't live according to Roman culture. So Roman law was still in place, uh, and Romans and the people who were traditionally part of the Roman Empire in, in Roman in their culture. So they had been culturized as Romans. They still lived under Roman law, the laws that were in place in Rome and all that. But these Germanic peoples, they had their own culture and they had their own laws and their own way of doing things and they didn't do things the Roman way. They did things their own way. And so what you see from this, when Rome falls you go from this very strong central government that holds everything together with its military power to now that central government has been severely weakened. It's fallen. 
And you've got these guys, so like the, 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 the Goths ruled large parts of what was the Roman Empire. They didn't rule all of it. So for instance, down in the Ostrogoth part of the empire were Italy and, and, and eventually, you know, they united everything. So from Spain all the way east uh, to the Balkans, you've got this Ostrogoth empire, which is the old Roman empire. But up north in France, you've got the Franks. They were called the Franks. That's why we call France France today. Because it's the Franks who were the people group who, who, ha- who held that area. Well, the Franks, uh, even before the Western Roman Empire had fallen, the Franks had already taken over that part of the empire and were ruling themselves as their own people, their own culture. And then you have Britannia or Britain. Uh, the British Isles uh, was part of the Roman Empire. So when you think about, for instance, uh, Britain or Britannia, uh, that was part of the Roman Empire where you have the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes and these, these tribes that are in Britain. That's a very different environment than what you had in Italy with the Ostrogoths. Down in Italy, it was still very much like the Roman Empire uh, in terms of laws and structure. Um, where versus up in Britannia, there was no Roman military any longer. And so you had tribal rule and you had these tribes fighting one another. So you had the, the, the Celts who were native to that area when the Roman Empire fell and the Romans left. It goes back, it reverts to tribal warfare. And so now you've got the Celts and the Angles, the Anglo-Saxons, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, the Celts all fighting one another. Um, for rule. And so it, it, it devolves into this, just this tribal system. Uh, and when Patrick goes into um, Ireland, that's what Patrick finds. Remember, Patrick came from Britain, and when Patrick was abducted as a slave and taken to Ireland, Britain was still under Roman rule. Well, in 476, now the empire falls, and all of that, there's no law and order, there's no central government, there's no strong military, the Romans are gone, and now might makes right. And, and so it kind of reverts back. But all the empire wasn't like that. But what you did have happen was these, now these tribes, whether it was the Franks or the the Goths or the Vandals or these Germanic, different Germanic tribes, this is what you're going to see eventually evolve into what would become the nations of Europe, the nation states of Europe. Now, it's going to take, it's going to take many centuries to get to the Europe we know today. But it was the fall of the Roman Empire that in the... In the that end of central control that allowed these different people groups to kind of begin to rule their own areas, identify their own areas, and ultimately become nations as we know them today. That's many centuries down the road, but this is kind of the beginning of that. 
And so um, these, these tribes were Christian, but they didn't all believe the same thing. So uh, this is why you have <clears throat> some of the councils that were called. And so, for instance, there was a guy named um, Arius. Arius was a Christian. Um, he was an elder. He was a leader in the church. Arius lived in the 3rd century. He lived from about 256 to 336. So we're backing up in history, but we're talking about Arius because Arius believed, his belief was that uh, Jesus was the Son of God, but he's not co-eternal with the Father. And so Jesus was basically created by the Father. Jesus isn't the eternal Son of God, the second person, eternal second person of the Godhead. Well, Arianism um, became uh, officially branded a heresy. Uh, but there were, there were Christians, so some of these Germanic tribes identified themselves as Arian in their Christian belief. They believed in Jesus, but they believed in the Jesus that Arius taught. And then you had other segments of the empire, other tribes, who were more aligned with the Roman church or what we would call the Catholic church. And so it was the Roman church who called for these councils to flesh out what we believe and to brand guys like Arius as heretics and say, no, the Bible, the scriptures teach Jesus is not a created being. He's the, he's the eternal son of God. Um, and so you had these different groups, though they were Christian, they didn't all believe the same thing. And so these things were getting worked out. Uh, at the same time, if you can think about it, the empire's fallen. The church is still in place. And the church is, is trying to bring together the doctrines of Scripture and the doctrines of the church and deal with the different heresies that existed. Even though they had the same Scriptures, they didn't all interpret those same Scriptures the same way. And so um, there... It was hard to separate the church and, you know, this is where we're going to see this later on. I don't know how far we're going to go. We just spend a lot of time going through history. But later on, it's going to be this fall of the empire that's going to ultimately lead, ultimately lead to great conflict that, that began, that arose and took place in the church. We alluded to this before. Who has the power? Does the emperor have the power or does the pope have the power? And so right now with the fall of the empire, this is like the seeds where all of these things are going to grow up into these great controversies that the church is one day going to have to deal with. And um, 
And we, and we don't have the Roman Empire as we have known it in history, but we're going to see something called the Holy Roman Empire rise up. That really has nothing to do with the Roman Empire of Julius Caesar and Octavian and those guys. Uh, it, it is very much linked to the church. Uh, and so the melding of church and state the seeds of all that is right here with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. These tribes now, you've had this great migration of people. It's interesting. Because what's happening right here, if we just use a rough period of time, if we say 500, it really started before that. Um, but part of the reason Rome, the Western Roman Empire fell was this great migration of people. So the 5th century saw a great migration of peoples. So these people groups from these northern European areas, these Germanic tribes, begin to migrate down into the Roman Empire. And they, they migrated into the Roman Empire for the same reason we have people migrating into America right now. They wanted to come because there was opportunity. There was peace. There was law and order. There was a better future for uh, families. And so you had this mass migration of people groups um, that, that came into the empire. And, and in part, it was that mass migration of people groups that, cre that, that led to the downfall of the empire because the empire couldn't, couldn't manage all of this. And those people groups brought their cultures, they brought their beliefs, they brought their way of doing things so that when you see the, the Western Roman Empire fall in 476, these Germanic tribes, though they recognized Rome and they recognized the laws and all of that, they didn't try to overthrow that, but they just said, you Romans can live by that, but we're going to have our own culture and we're going to do our own thing up here. We're, we're not... Uh, it, so there wasn't, um, there wasn't this unified way of doing things anymore. So under the Roman Empire, the Roman law, Roman might, made everybody do whatever the emperor said they needed to do. Now with the emperor gone and the empire fallen and the central military basically weakened to the point that it, you know, these Germanic tribal chiefs now are ruling it. They rule, they have the military might. And that's one of the reasons that um, they were seen as, in some ways, as equals, if you will, with the Eastern Empire. So Theodoric was kind of a region of the Eastern Emperor. The Eastern Emperor helped him come over and basically overthrow Odoacer. Uh, and he said, you know, we'll support you in this uh, if you basically support us. So there was, um, there was an agreement of mutual cooperation there. But uh, these guys had their own military might, military power, such that they didn't rule huge areas like Rome did. But these tribes, like the Goths, the Goths were a people that ruled a large area of the former Roman Empire. And, um, and same with these other... Anglo-Saxons. Anglo-Saxons became associated with what? Great Britain. 
But the Anglo-Saxons weren't the native people of Britain. They were the Angles and the Saxons. They were Germanic tribes that migrated to Britain. But now Britain has been so influenced by the Angles and the Saxons, we call them Anglo-Saxons, and that's where our language comes from. That's where so much of our, our, our own here in the West, in America, um, was greatly influenced by that. Well, these are all people groups that were tribal, tribal peoples that migrated to these areas of the Roman Empire and in time became the dominant people groups. And so the seeds of all of that was here with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, and then at the same time, the church is there. Now think about the church. Think about all the, the upheaval. So Rome at one time was a city of over a million people. By the time the Ostrogoths were ruling that area, Italy, uh, you know, even into to Spain and in those areas of southern Europe. Uh, one thing that happened after the fall of the Roman Empire was, um, we talk about a mass migration, there was a mass migration of people fleeing the cities. So Rome went from a city of over a million to a city of about 50,000 because there was, People couldn't live in cities because it, it was not, I mean, you know, we talk about supply chains, you know, you, you couldn't, there was no food in the markets. There was no, there were not just the very practical things that you needed to sustain life. And so people migrated from urban areas to rural areas. And in time, this is where, um, you know, in the dark, in what we, what we could call the dark ages, from 500 to 1,000. In that 500 years after the fall of the empire, um, in parts of Europe, in many parts of Europe, um, it's not, cities weren't there, weren't, there weren't lots of big flourishing cities. And so, we'll see later on, this is where... Um, When you think of the Middle Ages, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? First thing that comes to your mind. If I said Middle Ages, what do you think of? Huh? Knights. Knights. Castles. Yeah. So most people think of knights and castles, and we have this romantic idea of how awesome would it be to live in a castle and um, you know how awesome would it be to be a knight wearing armor what was that armor made of not stainless steel I mean you know we, we have these romantic notions of knights in shining armor how long did their armor stay shiny is what I want to know because if you leave a piece of steel outside uh, overnight and the dew gets on it, what happens to that piece of steel? It rusts. You know, so we have these romantic notions of living in a castle. There's no climate control. Um, you know, you got to hang 
tapestries over the windows to keep the wind and the rain out. You got to sit on the ledge of your bedroom if you if you if you're this advanced. You sit on the little edge of your bedroom in your bedroom, and there's a hole there. You sit over and you you do your business in that hole, and it ultimately goes into a into a barrel down there somewhere. And we did learn this when we were in Ireland. It was the left-handed person who was the stirrer. Uh, when we took, when we tra when we uh, toured Trim Castle in Ireland, the castle tour guide says, "Who here is left-handed?" Of course, I raised my hand. She said, "You'd have one of the highest-paying jobs in the castle." She said, "You'd be called what's what what we would call the stirrer." And uh, she said, "The left-handed person would." to be the person to go and stir the stir it up you know so you, you think of these these sayings you know he just wants to stir, stir some blankety blank up you know well that there really was someone who stirred that stuff up uh and they they use that you know but think about that you know there's not a lot romantic about living in a castle but that age that we think of, the Middle Ages. Now we're in the early Middle Ages, and so we haven't got to the, to the place yet where there are, there are castles and lords, but that's coming. Well, how did, all of that, how did all of that evolve? Well, it evolved because after the fall of the Roman Empire in the early Middle Ages, what we call the Dark Ages, um, people migrated away from cities. Um, in just trying to survive. Because now there was not a central military, there was not widespread law and order. You had tribes, you have these things. And so eventually what happened was um, kings, rulers would give land to some Lord, he would be called. He would be called a lord, and he would, the king would give a lord land, lots of land, and he'd say, "If you'll be loyal to me, I'll give you this land." And then, um, so this during the Dark Ages, there was um, a socioeconomic hierarchy developed. So at the bottom, who was at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder during the Dark Ages? Anybody know what they were called? Yeah, they were called serfs. And serfs were not technically slaves, but they were slaves. So if you were a serf, so most people, so for the vast majority of people, when the Roman Empire fell, for, for the majority of people, their lives didn't change. Because the majority of people were farmers and laborers. And they were already out farming, laboring. And so the people's lives who's changed drastically were the people who, who lived in cities who might have been merchants or craftsmen, or people of, of higher means, um, their lives changed a lot. 
But the farmers and the laborers who are out plowing fields and growing food and tending animals, their lives really didn't change. And so during the Dark Ages, serfs were those laborers, those farmhands who were out there growing food, tending animals. And a serf basically was given a place to live, an allotment of food in exchange for his labor. He didn't own anything. He didn't own his home. His home was given to him. And he had to work for his home. And he had to work for his food. But he was allowed to live and to eat as long as he provided labor for the Lord or the guy who owned the land. Now you can see, for instance, the migration of these people groups and these tribal chiefs. Guess who became the lords of the land? Well, it was the tribal chiefs. So it's these guys who had power in their tribes. Eventually, these guys became the ones who worked, if you will, worked for the king, worked for the ruler, and made sure that his realm was taken care of. And there was this whole hierarchy that developed during the early Middle Ages into the Middle Ages. And so serfs were at the bottom. You had uh, these guys called um, villains. It's where we get our word villain. And they were like serfs, except they were able to they were able to have a small plot of land that, that was theirs. It, they didn't own it, but it was theirs to, 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 to work, and they got to keep some of the produce from the land that they were given control over, if you will. Serfs didn't get to keep anything. Serfs worked, and serfs were given their food. Velans were, um, were allowed to keep a portion. I want to get my little book here. They were allowed to keep a portion, and... Um, and they had a greater measure of freedom, but they really weren't free. So, for instance, if you were a serf in the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, how did you become free? There was a way for you to become free. So if you were able to run away from your master and you were able to get away for a year and a day without getting caught, you could become free. But what were you going to be free to do? <laughs> you see, it's kind of a catch-22. Um, it was near impossible for that to happen, but, but not not impossible. These uh, villains were people that were just above 
serfs, and they controlled a small plot of land that they were able to farm. They didn't own it, but they paid their landowner, they paid their landlord. That's where the word comes from, landlord. We still use that term today. So who owned the land? The landlord owned the land. And they paid their landlords with food that they grew themselves or animals that they raised. So they were given a small plot of land to farm, to, grow, to, to raise animals on. It wasn't their land. It belongs to the landlord. But in exchange for having control of that plot of land, that small plot of land, they were to give food to the landlord, to the, to the guy who lived in the big house. This system, was, it was almost impossible for you to rise above being a farmer laborer. Um, and then it's, it's interesting. Uh, so there were towns and in the towns, just like in any town, there obviously had to be shops, right? There had to be merchants, craftsmen. Uh, what happened when your shovel broke? What happened when your plow broke? So you had blacksmiths, you had people who bought and sold and fixed things just like we do today, merchants, craftsmen. Um, that was a higher class of people. Um, you know, if you had a storefront, you were, you were pretty, pretty well off. The whole thing of, of, of like guilds, journeymen, apprentices, all of that really um, coalesced and developed in, in, the, in this time in the Dark Ages. And, and they, they had guilds, so the, the trade guilds were established. And the whole system that we have today, you know, in terms of labor unions and, and things, really comes out of that, that system of the guilds, apprentices, and journeymen, and so whatever craft it might be. Masterpiece. Mm. Right. And then also, you didn't, you kind of didn't want to do too good because you didn't want to show up if you're your master. Right. So it was kind of like this fine line. There's a really great um, series on the Middle Ages by, I think his name is Brian Reeves. Uh huh. And, and he's from Gordon Conwell Theological Center. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so a lot of what we, you know, we, we, ju we think about that. We watch movies about knights and, and all of that. And, and, of course, knights came along later than the time period we're in right now. But, but it all arose and came up from, it all came about because of the fall of Rome and the rise of nations, um, what were tribes and people groups became nations. Germany is called Germany for a reason. They were Germanic tribes. And so the region we call Germany is called Germany because that's where those Germanic tribes, those regions is where they came from. Um, not just what we define as Germany today. There was, 
that large area, those tribes were quote-unquote Germanic tribes. Later on, we'll see that, you know, the Vikings will come to Europe uh, from Scandinavia and, and will have a great impact on, on Europe and have a great impact on us still today. Um, So one of the, I think one of the most important things when we think about this, one thing that was a constant in a sense, there was various beliefs, there was lots of moving parts and things going on within the church, but it was the church that provided the stability that was needed. So when we talk about these these dark ages um, or the early middle ages and we think about um, these villages where people lived. By the time we get to the 5th century, uh, almost all the, the villages would have had uh, a representation of the church there. There would have been a priest. There would have been a, a pastor. There would have been a, a, a church. Might have been in a home. Um, in the early days, um, they, they, they built buildings that were, that were similar to Roman basilicas um, because that's, that's, basilicas were meeting houses in the, Roman, in, in the Roman culture, the Roman Empire. So um, that, that was part of Roman culture. And so churches um, became a centerpiece of, of the village. It's why even in, in the founding of our country, uh, the first thing when, when they would go to an area and establish an area, the first thing they would build would be a church. The church was central to the civilization, to the culture, to the community. And so that was true in the Dark Ages. In, in this time, the church provided that stability so Roman Empire has fallen you got um, you know so many things happening the, the way of life is changing for people but the church was there and the church provided that stability uh, for people and we really should be very thankful if we think about our church fathers who really did the hard work uh, you know it's Think about today. I mean, if you're going to have a council today, you can have it virtually. You can have a Zoom meeting. Um, and if you have to travel, you can get on an airplane and go. And, you know, you can be anywhere in the world just about in a day. Um, but when you think about these councils where you'd have three or, or 300 or more bishops show up, they had to travel. And they would stay for days and they would work through these theological issues because it was that important to get it right. And, and in our modern culture today, we so often think 
especially critics of Christianity. We think that these guys were just, you know, out for their own. And, and there were men like that. And we see them in history. But I believe for the most part, these men that sacrificed to go and, and do the hard work of working through these theological issues to identify what is orthodox, what is truth, and what's heresy. What should we be teaching our people? What should we not be teaching our people? We really owe them a debt of gratitude because there was a lot happening in the world at this time, especially in Europe with the fall of the empire. And things really could have gone south in a bad way. But God in His sovereignty, God in His providence had already put in place. The church was there. And even these Germanic tribes who were coming in and conquering uh, and taking territory, they were already, many of them already embracing Christianity. Um, and so even the differences, you know, the people that followed the, the Aryan, uh, Arius and Arianism, um, and those who held to a more orthodox belief. So the, uh, the confession of Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, that, that, that council was called to address this issue. Is Jesus the eternal uh, member of the Godhead? Is he the eternal son of God? Uh, yes, he has a human nature, but he has a divine nature and they're not they're not separate. They were together in that one divine man, the God-man. And, and so they did the hard work of coming together and hammering out these theological issues and giving us the confessions that we still have today. We say the Nicene Creed. It was given to us in the 4th century. We, we have the confession of, of Chalcedon. That was given to us in the 5th century. And those creeds and confessions were important to hold the belief of the church together so that Christianity didn't disintegrate and just come to nothing. God didn't allow that to happen, but He used men to make that happen. Yes? Another point along those lines of there was real persecution going on. Yeah. Like murdering people who didn't. Who didn't. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, that work literally saved lives. Yeah, absolutely. Come to a conclusion this is orthodoxy. This is the church believes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so you see, you know, God put in place the church there so that it needed to be there. You know, um, and of course, in 1517, we had the beginning of the Reformation proper, um, which again was faithful men in the church who looked at the doctrines of the church that had skewed off and veered off course. And so, in part, they did that because of those early councils that met and provided that foundation of orthodoxy from the Scripture. Um, and, and 
They didn't want that work to be wasted uh, by allowing, by that time, the Roman Catholic Church to, to say and believe things and promote things and teach things that were obviously unscriptural. And it's why we should today contend for the faith. It's why we shouldn't just say, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, they can believe what they want to believe. Yeah, they can believe what they want to believe, but it really does matter. And we should not, as Christians, uh, roll over and say it doesn't matter. We can't call good evil and evil good. We can't take the truth and make it a lie. It's not the truth anymore if we do that. And so it's important for us. This is our heritage, and we should embrace it and learn from it and be encouraged by it. All right, any, other, any thoughts? There's so much here, but... Um, it's, it's difficult to do a... a big view of this because there's so much that you can get into. But I wanted to just kind of look at this from a really high up perspective and and see how this time in history is really sowing the seeds of things that are going to happen later on in history. I mean, I'm talking centuries later. So when we think about World War I, for instance, World War I, in uh, those nations um, that existed, in those empires that existed prior to World War I, uh, much of that came out of the fall of Rome and the evolution of these people groups into nations. Um, and, and then you see what happened in World War I directly influenced. It was a domino effect of, of what caused World War II. And, and, and if you go back and you look at the maps and you look at the names of nations and the borders of nations, you'll see that the world has changed very much. Na- national boundaries and, and things... Um, have changed a lot over the course of history. And if you just look at maps starting today and you go back in history and you look at maps of Europe, you'll see, you'll eventually get back to where you'll see a map of the Roman Empire and you'll see these tribes and these people groups and you'll see how the nations we have today evolved out of those people groups that were just simply tribes back then because there was a one empire that that ruled that part of the world, the known world at that time. Well, now that empire is gone, and we've got something else in its place, but the church remains. And we're going to see, as we move forward, we're going to see how the church and the state, if you will, coexisted together, commingled together in, in what came out of that in terms of Conflicts, um, conflicts um, that caused great upheavals in history. All right, that's all I have tonight. Any thoughts, any questions?
Christianity not coming on the scene in the form of, I mean, it's, it was there, but, you know, like the workings of, um, there's some great, um, I, I don't know if you're planning on talking about Boethius at all, um, but he wrote the book, I think it's called the Consolation of Philosophy. Uh-huh. Which that work, that work highly influenced Elizabeth the Great. Um, she spent some time translating that and uh, in her personal notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, to me, it's just interesting to see God's hand in, in his bride, and he's always you know, mm -hmm. going to cleanse his bride over time. And we're part of that church today. But, like, all of this history going on, like, they could have been pagan kings, is what my point is. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it is an important point. And so one of the things, you know, there's so much, there's so much history as we're going through this and we're really going through it fast and I can't do it justice. Um, but when we, you know, you think the Reformation is in 1517, the beginning of the Reformation. Um, so I, I think it would be worth, and, and I do think it would be worth looking at some of that history um, because how we came to be as a nation is greatly tied to that. And, and it's a great point. Um, those monarchs like Elizabeth, those, they were reading people from this time. They were reading people from the 3rd and 4th and 5th century. They were reading Augustine. They were reading Bohetheus. They were reading these guys. And, um, and it shaped their way of thinking. Therefore, it shaped the way they ruled. And so, you know, we didn't talk about him. Um, but uh, Clovis I, he was the pagan king of the Franks. Um, modern-day France. In 496, he converts to, to Christianity. And um, there are amazing stories surrounding some of these guys, these kings. Uh, and it's little bitty things like, like their conversion to Christianity, which seemingly is insignificant, has great significance later on because, you know, a, a son, uh, a relative... Uh, somebody, there's a connection in history that um, made a great impact. And you, you couldn't see it in the moment. It's like we know. We can't see in the moment what's happening. But, you know, 200 years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to be able to see things that we couldn't see in our moment. And they're going to see how that impacted history and how it impacted the kingdom. And so, you know, one of the, the purposes that we had in going through this timeline was to, to kind of gain that perspective because we are so caught up in the moment and we, through dispensational theology, have been 
convinced here in the West that the world's going to end any minute and Jesus is coming back any time. So, um, you know, that's our focus. And if that's our focus, we're not, we're not really looking and learning the lessons we should be learning from the past so that we can prepare for the future. If we don't think we have a future other than being in heaven with the Lord, then we're not going to prepare for the future. And we can say we will, but for all practical purposes, if we don't really believe we're going to be here, we're not going to really prepare. We're not going to prepare to be here. And uh, when you consider how long people have been waiting for Jesus to come back, um, hasn't always been the case, because there's always been faithful post-millennialists out there who have been preparing for the future. It's just that we live in a culture now here in our Western culture in the last 150 years, dispensationalism is what has permeated uh, most of our seminaries and most of our eschatological thinking. Um, and so we just have to rethink. We have to reform our thoughts and we have to think about things differently. And history is really an effective way to help us do that because it helps us learn lessons from the past so that we can be better prepared today and for the future. And so those things that happened in the past really are important, and, 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 and we should look at some of those, and we will look at some of those. In fact, if you've got some of those, Joshua, since you listened to that series, if there are some particular points in people uh, in history that you think would be particularly helpful, man, pass those along and let's look at them. Um, so what I'm saying, too, is um, we, may, we may take greater chunks of time. It's, it's difficult because there's always, every year, there's something important happens. And so, you know, I've got to skip over some things, though, and, and get to the most important things. And we're going to try to do that without, um, you know, skipping everything. Did you have a question? I'm just going to say that when we talk about the kings and all the movements and tribes, that's not the primary aspect. The thing that happens is that it's God's church. Yeah. His kingdom. He brings all this about as he continues to move his kingdom forward. Yeah. And his will. That's what causes all the kings and the tribes and everything. That's the correct. That's actually the yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, this is all happening because those apostles and disciples of Christ were faithful to take the gospel, to preach the gospel everywhere they went. And, you know, these Germanic tribes, how did they hear the gospel? Somebody took it to them. Um, you know, in our, in our lesson today, in... Uh, Absolutely, it, it absolutely does. In our fifth grade lesson today, we studied St. Boniface. And uh, St. Boniface was born Winfred in Essex, England, in the 8th century. And, um, 
it's said of him that by age five he knew he wanted to be a monk. He was trained as a Benedictine monk. Um, and he was sent first to Germany, modern-day Netherlands, but a place called Friesland. And uh, there was a king of the, Fries, the people there in Friesland named King Radbod. And King Radbod rejected wholesale the gospel. And he said, if my ancestors are in hell, then I want to be in hell with them. To hell with your gospel. And, and his people wouldn't embrace the gospel because the king wouldn't embrace the gospel. And Winfred went back uh, feeling like a failure, but he learned. And uh, eventually he became Boniface. Um, the Pope renamed him when he was made a bishop, but he went back to Germany. He went to a city called Hesse. And he went back to these Germanic tribes. He went back to a resistant Germanic tribe and he faithfully ministered there for, uh, for 30 years and um, eventually became a bishop, became an archbishop. And it is said of Boniface that he, I'm sorry, um, uh, it was uh, said of, of him that there's no Englishman that has made a greater impact on Europe than Winfred named Boniface. And when, when he went to Hesse, it was Boniface who, who gave us a, a tradition, a Christmas tradition that probably most of you still participate in every year. Do you know what it might be? How many of you put a Christmas tree up? So Boniface, the, the, the pagan tribe that he was dealing with, they worshipped a sacred oak. And um, legend has it that uh, Boniface happened upon this tribe of pagans who were gonna, getting ready to sacrifice a prince to this, uh, a young prince to this sacred oak god. And he stopped them and he cut this tree down, this massive oak tree. And he told them, he said, I told you that my God can overcome your God. And he cuts the tree down and they're appalled that the, the God of the tree didn't kill the guy trying to kill the tree. So it's like, um, I guess you're right. Your God is more powerful because you just chopped our tree down. And the legend says that Boniface sees a young, tender, evergreen tree and he uses, because, you know, we, we think that people are like us. You know, anywhere you want to take your Bible, you can because you've, you've got one or two or three or 57 in your house. You know, when Boniface was preaching the gospel to the Germanic tribes in the 8th century, nobody had a Bible except maybe Boniface. And so how is he preaching the gospel? He sees an evergreen tree and he uses the picture of an evergreen tree to explain the eternal life of Christ that the gospel gives you. And it's from that evergreen tree that, that Boniface used to preach the gospel to those pagan Germans. That's how the tradition of the Christmas tree came about. So we put that evergreen tree in our house because it's a symbol of Christ. And the eternal, the everlasting life that Christ gives to us through his gospel. So you can call it a pagan symbol all you want, but I'm going to call it a symbol that was redeemed for the glory of God.
And I feel zero tinge of guilt about having a Christmas tree in my house. I don't care what anybody says. So, thanks St. Boniface for that. All right, we better stop.